welcome to the Proelium, which means the battle. The Joshua Lectures are an extension of New Antioch's classical education model. The intent of these lectures is to expose a larger audience to the understanding of the Lordship of Christ over all spheres of life. These lectures aim to address various topics within the disciplines of theology, philosophy, education, medicine, law, and ethics. Classical education engages these topics in a robust manner with an eye upon the cultural landscape and a mind transformed by the scriptures. For a reformation of today's vocations and institutions, Christians must be courageous and equipped to evoke real change for Christ. To be courageous without being equipped leads to defeat. To be equipped without possessing courage leads to disaster. New Antioch extends an invitation to you to come and experience these lectures in person. Each presenter approaches their topic with a substantial background of experience and or formal training in their particular discipline and endeavors to provide a careful and rigorous application of the Christian faith to life. Each evening's lectures will afford those in attendance the opportunity to ask questions of the guest lecturer through a moderated Q&A period following the presentation. If you would like more information, please email us at admin at newantiochinstitute.com. with you here again this evening. And uh, indeed, as Pastor Tim mentioned, what order shall we deal with these two topics of heaven and hell? That is, in fact, an interesting question. I want to spend a couple of minutes discussing it because these things get into our philosophy and our, our, our biblical theology. On one hand, uh, we might say, well, we ought to start with heaven. And the reason, yeah, and maybe there are other reasons other than this, but one of that occurs to me is that heaven is original to creation. That heaven is original to creation, at least in the sense that we ought to think of heaven, that the perfect estate in which man was created was an estate in which he dwelt with God, God with him in that, uh, in the garden of Eden. Um, hell is not original. It is part of God's good design in a certain sense that I will unpack when we begin to speak about the doctrine of hell in the sense that God has certainly decreed hell to exist and that God's ultimate purposes whatsoever they be are good and in line with his glory, as well as other things which we would also agree um, as good and without giving away all uh, of where I will be going with this this evening. Um, but for instance, our Lord Jesus says that, um, that hell is prepared for the devil and his angels. And so there's a, that, that was, you could say this is sort of the primary purpose of hell. Man was not created for hell, although you would perhaps want to also say that in a certain sense, uh, the angels were not created for hell either. But I think that there is a, a, a certain 
distinction that the Lord was trying to get at in saying that. Um, and so heaven is original. Hell is, is not. It's a, it's a deficiency related not to God's ultimate purposes, but certainly related to, to hell and what is good within the creation. So in that sense, we might say, well, we should start with, with heaven. Uh, however, I think there's an argument to be made that we should start with hell as well. And that is that hell is the, you might say, the experience of man. Not that what we experience right now is hell. In fact, I will be making an argument against that perspective, which so many you find so prevalent in society and in, even in modern evangelicalism that well, hell is all of the terrible things that occur on earth. No, I will be making an argument biblically that the doctrine of hell is far, far worse than, or not, not the doctrine of hell, but, but, uh, but hell, the, the experience of hell that we see within scripture is far worse than uh, anything that we would find here on earth. Although perhaps one is a picture of the other, a shadow of the other. But uh, hell is our current experience in this sense that in our sinful state and rebellion against God, hell is our trajectory without God's intervention, without the grace of God in Jesus Christ. We experience as human beings the fact that we are on our way to hell, we are separated from God, and that it is only from this that we are rescued and find deliverance and are uh, given a place in heaven. And so hell, you might say, is the, um, well, I'll use the word again, normative experience of, of, of the human being here on earth, even though it certainly has uh, this trajectory that culminates in eternal punishment. And we would want to make a strong distinction between our experience here now and the hell of the future. But we have been, of course, saved out of that. And so uh, I am going to start with hell this evening. And then I'm going to move and so be able to finish with heaven, which um, echoes our experience as believers. We have been plucked, as it were, out of the fire. And we have been transferred into, out of darkness, into the kingdom of the sun whom the Father loves. So that is what we are going to be uh, considering. First of all, hell, and then in the next lecture, um, the doctrine of heaven. So with the doctrine of hell this evening, I'm going to be taking a rather apologetic perspective rather than a biblical, uh, sort of biblical historical one or a kind of biblical survey perspective. Uh, there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that that is my, my expertise in some of my writing. Um, and yet also, I do think that this is the need for this day. So just to illustrate where we find ourselves in modern evangelicalism and, uh, well, in the broader world as well. But there are, um, I think, impacted by a world that would want to put away the idea of divine wrath and eternal punishment. There are many Christians, philosophers, and teachers, and, and seminary professors who too have denied the traditional doctrine of hell, um, being the doctrine of eternal conscious 
bodily punishment. And each one of those things are important to define what hell is, all right? Let me just say those again. First of all, it is, uh, it is defined by punishment, but it is an everlasting punishment, and this is what many people have great difficulty with. It is bodily, and so it occurs in the body, um, and it is conscious. People are aware of their suffering. Uh, so having def de defined that, we find that many people within modern evangelicalism are leaving what has been the, the traditional doctrine and, and teaching throughout the course of theological history on the doctrine. Very clear in scripture, I believe, and I will, we will be getting to the scriptures here in due time. But just as one example, uh, we have a local professor here, uh, many would say one of the most um, significant professors, theologians we have in the greater Vancouver area, um, a fellow by the name of John Stackhouse at Regent College. And uh, he is a, uh, an annihilationist, or what is sometimes called conditional immortality. They do not believe that immortality is inherent in the human condition, but rather something that is conferred upon believers as they believe in in Christ. And so then um, they believe that those upon whom this immortality is not conferred, then just simply after the judgment, just wink away into non-existence. There is no conscious, bodily, eternal torment. Um, there is, however, a more subtler, a more subtle problem that exists in evangelical circles. There would be many that would certainly affirm the biblical teaching of, um, of, of everlasting punishment. And yet what you will find in so many pulpits and presentations of the gospel and even teaching on the topic of hell, when it is uh, considered on its own, is that it is usually considered as a place, and many of you would, will have heard this before, as a place where God is not. Right? It will be presented in that way. Hell is a place where you are separated from God and his many blessings. Now, in response to that, we ought to affirm that that is not only true, and it is, but I will go so far as to say that that is the ultimate truth of hell that the loss of God and all of his blessings and goodness forms the chief part of the suffering of those in hell, even as it was the chief part of the suffering of Jesus Christ upon the cross, to be cut off from his father, or an experience at least, um, of, of his father and his father's blessing. Of course, there's an important sense in which he was not cut off, from the father. The father was in fact pleased with the son and what he did at the cross. And yet the son was treated as one who was a sinner and uh, experienced, uh, Christ experienced the, uh, the sense of forsakenness according to his cry of dereliction upon the cross. So we see often, we hear often in evangelical circles that hell is where God is not. The, the challenge and the problem with that 
is that as you turn to the pages of scripture, we find that our Lord Jesus rarely defines hell in that way. Now, this is fascinating just from the outset, because if indeed, as I have, I've admitted that hell is uh, predominantly or in its highest sense, this loss of God and his blessing, then, then why wouldn't Jesus speak about it in that way? Either one would seem at the outset, maybe without further distinctions, either I'm wrong or, uh, or there's something going on there that we need to grasp. And I think it's going, we'll see that it's, it's the latter. And this is important for understanding the doctrine of hell. So we find ourselves in a place in society currently where we desperately need to recover the traditional doctrine of hell. And we need a way of understanding hell that is able to answer criticisms, not only outside of the church, but within the church. To frame it in a way that is in tuned with the scriptures and how our Lord speaks about, uh, about hell, and yet also is philosophical enough and, and sensical enough to be able to, to answer uh, very strong criticisms. Uh, for instance, how could uh, such a loving God possibly punish people forever, torment people forever in hell? So we want to, uh, I want to lean into that this evening and draw some, some things that have come out of my study and, and some of which is, much of it is contained in, in my book. Uh, I'm going to spend uh, quite a bit of time on one re major reason why we need the doctrine of hell. And then I'm going to mention much more quickly five others. All right. So, um, again, we're wrestling with the fact that, you know, do we, do we speak about hell to the degree we should in the way we should? And C.S. Lewis, who is one of my favorite authors, Phenomenal theologian for somebody who wasn't, you would say, ah, he wasn't really a theologian, but he, he was a great theologian anyways. Uh, he says concerning hell, there is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this if it lay within my power. And one understands the sense of that, that we are rightfully um, aghast at the prospect of hell. And yet... Uh, I would submit to you that if we lose the doctrine of hell, in fact, we lose everything. Everything good about God, even his love and his mercy. Um, J.C. Ryle says this, Disbelieve hell and you unscrew, unsettle, and unpin everything in scripture. You may as well throw your Bible away at once. For, from no hell... To know God, there is but a series of steps. So, I want to start with uh, the first reason why we ought to believe and hold fast to the doctrine of hell. And it is this, that if there is no hell, there is no gracious warning that goads us to heaven. There is no gracious warning that goads us to heaven. Uh, God is in fact gracious to give us the message of hell, because if we did not have it, we would not, in many cases, we would not end up at heaven. 
So let's, um, let's take a, a brief look and see how it is that Christ talks about the doctrine of hell. Take your Bibles with me, and we're going to take a look at a few passages in the book of Matthew, and then in Mark. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. And in verses 18 and 19. Jesus says, A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And we see that this uh, metaphor of fire is used throughout scripture and, and more than a metaphor, I believe, but it's used throughout the scriptures to speak of the, the pain and the, uh, the, the ongoing nature of, uh, of, of the punishment of hell. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Here Jesus says, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, this is a particularly interesting passage because uh, Christ here is speaking to his disciples. To his disciples. And here, the fear of hell, in a certain sense, is even appropriate to disciples. Turn with me over to Matthew chapter 13. Verse 40, Matthew 13, verse 40. Speaking about the, the, the end of the age, the Lord is interpreting one of his parables. He says, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The son of man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then turn with me over to Matthew chapter 24, verse 50, Matthew 24, verse 50. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then let's turn over to Mark chapter 9, verse 43. Actually, let me read from verse 42, because the lead up um, may be useful for us later. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. So looking at these passages, one might say that Christ was the original hellfire and brimstone preacher. <laughs> he was unmitigating in his speaking about hell. 
and in its application. He spoke clearly, cuttingly about hell. It was a regular part of his preaching and of his message to repent and believe the gospel. And so, even though most of my perspective here this evening is apologetic and even to some degree philosophical, uh, I want to take a second and apply this to each person here. That on account of your sin, you deserve an everlasting punishment in hellfire, where God will rightfully torment you forever on account of the heinous crimes that you have committed against your fellow man and against him. And this is the fearful message that is true, which is useful for us in taking us out of our, the lazy stupor of our lives and helping us to set our eyes on a salvation that can only be granted to us in Christ and what he has done for you at the cross, in his death, and then in his resurrection. Jesus Christ bearing the full punishment that you deserve on account of your sins, which would otherwise be punished forever in hell. Christ, the infinite son, bearing an infinite punishment, even though at one time in his body upon the cross. And so we see in this message a gracious warning to goad us to heaven. One might ask, okay, Lord Jesus, why would you not woo people to heaven? Why wouldn't you, Lord Jesus, describe all of the riches of God's glory and unfold the, the manifest blessings of heaven in such a way, in the beautiful way that you are able to communicate, you, the only one who has seen fully those blessings, why would you not do that rather than speak so often, so pointedly about hell? Similarly, we might take the same question and apply this to the Old Testament. If you have read through the Old Testament, and, and, and especially you find this um, not only, but you find it, it, it to a large degree in the prophets, you will find that the promises of punishment, the, the, the warnings, the curses, outnumber the promises of blessing. And again, you might ask, okay, God, what are you doing with that? You, you've told us that you are good. You do good. You're the source of all blessing. Uh, we, can, we can't even imagine. No eye hath seen nor ear heard nor the heart of men imagined what you have prepared for those who love you. So then why this focus on punishment? Here's the answer. Is that on account of our sin, we are far more prone to hear warnings of loss than we are to hear of the beauties of greater good. All right. This is on account of our sin. Our fallen nature does not naturally take a look at, at what is good and then lift up its eyes to see what is greater and want greater things, glorious things. 
Rather, it is loss and pain in our fallen state, which so often motivates us. Let me give you, give you an example of this. How many times have you known a family member, a friend, perhaps even yourself in, in, in this kind of situation where you have an unhealthy habit, overeating or smoking or whatever it may be, and that doctor, and, and, and that, sorry, that person knows up here, intellectually, that if they change that, there will be a significant increase in their quality of life. People know that. Very, very few would deny that. And yet, how few actually make those changes? The thing that is much more successful in motivating change is when, upon a visit to a doctor, the doctor says, listen, if you do not change your habits, you are going to die within a couple of years. And it is that looming loss which motivates where gain does not. And in fact, secular psychologists have, have also demonstrated uh, this same aspect of human nature that we're far more uh, Avert, uh, sorry, we're far more sensitive to loss than to reward. So um, one very prominent psychologist by the name of Daniel Kahneman, uh, in, a, in a fascinating book, a really great book called Thinking Fast and Slow, he, uh, he mentions this, um, yeah, this idea that, that human beings are loss-averse, and he comes up with this... Um, uh, this little game that, that he plays to illustrate this. And he's played this game lots and lots of times with lots of different groups of people. But it goes like this. You are offered a gamble on the toss of a coin. Now, we know as Christians we're not gamblers, okay? So just go with it for a minute, okay? You're offered a gamble on the toss of a coin. If the coin shows tails, you lose $100, okay? If the coin shows heads, you win... $150, $150, not $100, $150, all right? Would you accept that gamble? Now, the reality is, as they have played this game over and over again, very few will take that gamble, in spite of the fact that your chances of winning are, you know, they're, they're that there's a, well, how would you say it? There's a, there's a net gain that's inherent in the gamble. But very few will. And the reason is people uh, envision the loss of $100 as more significant than the gain of $150. People don't like the idea of losing. And they don't like the idea of losing more than they like the idea of gaining. And this is a... This is a regular feature of human nature. And so let me suggest to you, and even when it comes to your proclamation of the gospel and preachers who preach the gospel, whether they're talking specifically about the doctrine of hell at times or whether it's just a small feature of a larger gospel presentation, that we need to speak the way Christ speaks about hell because it is that motivating factor 
that will cause people to realize what they may lose if they, don't, uh, if they do not receive Christ and if they do not put away their sins. So, we desperately need to speak about hell not only as something that, um, that is apart from God's blessing, uh, but as something where you will lose. You will be punished. And this is an important part of the gospel. Uh, well, not the gospel message itself, but of the presentation of the gospel, because you need to be saved from something. You need to be saved from your sins. You need to be saved from hell. So that's the first. I'm going to, I'm going to go through the uh, five more here in, in much more rapid fashion. But let me suggest to you, secondly, that if there is no hell, there is no ultimate value in humanity. There is no ultimate value in humanity. Now, some of these reasons that I will be giving you, excuse me, be giving you this evening are, may seem paradoxical. Uh, and yet, in, if you think carefully about each one of them, they hold true. Hell secures the value of humanity. We read uh, from Matthew that there was a passage in which it spoke of, or was it in Mark? The passage that spoke of the child that you cause to sin. That's Mark chapter 9. Um, if you cause a child to sin, it would be better for you that a millstone would be tied to you and you'd be thrown into the depths. Um, and, and, and so it's, we see the, the value there that God places upon even the, we could use this word, the least person of humanity, right? Not least in the sense that one uh, person made in the image of God is less valuable than another, but in the sense that economically children are, are of less value in that limited uh, perspective. So if there is no hell, there is no ultimate value in humanity. Consider this. That we live in a world in which there are heinous crimes perpetrated against people. Recently, there was a shooting at a Christian school um, in, which some, in which children, Christian children, Christian uh, teachers were, were targeted, killed, murdered. There is examples to no end of rape, murder, terrible things perpetrated. In society. And the atheist may, or, or even some Christians may have a hard time wrestling with that. Where, where's God? Where's God with all of these evils? Uh, and yet, one is not free to escape them. That is to say that even if there is some worth to the, to the philosophical question of, of, you know, why so much pain? Why so much evil? Why so much sin? What are God's purposes in permitting this? I'm not undermining those questions. Those can be good questions. But here's the, here's the thing we need to consider is that there is no real world in which there, there are not these issues. And so in light of that, what is the next best thing? Well, it is the, I actually think it is the best thing, but the, the best thing, given sin, 
is that there would be a place where those perpetrators are punished as God inflicts vengeance for the sake of those he has created upon those who perpetrate these evils, securing their value as the judge and the creator of all these things. So for instance, we read so much in the old Testament that God is the, well, we many times in the new as well, that God is the defender of the vulnerable. So for instance, in, in Exodus chapter 22, verse 22, we read, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword. That's how much God cares about the vulnerable. Hell secures the value of humanity by showing in the punishment, how much God hates sin, violence, abuse, etc. Thirdly, if there is no hell, there is no loving God. Now, this seems, again, paradoxical. Some people will say, well, how could a loving God possibly um, send people to hell? But the reality, and we find this in Psalm 5, is that there is a progression, a clear progression from the fact that uh, God does not delight in wickedness. In other words, he is a good God, a loving God, to the fact that he hates evil doers, those who persist in that evil. And then the fact that he, uh, that he punishes the evil doer. There is a consistency, a perfect symmetry as God moves through from his love of love, if we could put it that way, to his hatred of hate, to his hatred of those who persist in that evil, evildoers, and then his, and then his punishment of those evildoers. And it is on a, that account that we see the same truth reflected in the saints. In Psalm 97, verse 10, it says, Oh, you who love the Lord, hate evil. Oh, you who love the Lord, hate evil. And the same is true of our God who hates evil and punishes it forever, displaying how much this God loves love in his punishment of hatred, his punishment of, of evil. Next, if there is no hell, there is no esteem or honor in creation. There's no esteem or honor in creation. Um, this is known as the, sometimes known as the infinite honor, infinite sin connection. It has sometimes been stated like this, that our sins are of infinite weight against a God who is infinite in honor. Now, I think that that is true, but what I would want to add to that is the thing that really explains that connection is the fact that we have an infinite obligation to God. Now, Anselm was sort of the progenitor of this argument, and he, uh, he wrote uh, Cur Deus Homo, Why God Became Man, and he has this wonderful proof in the book that I'm not going to rehearse for you this evening, but it is brilliant. It is brilliant. And I try to bring this out uh, in my book, but essentially 
because we have an infinite obligation to God, we, we have to give him uh, in every way perfect obedience. And that infinite obligation has a weight to it that, that is infinite in, in value, such that when we sin, it deserves an infinite, an infinite punishment. Again, if you want to go um, into detail into this argument, um, you'll find it. You'll find it in the book. But what I want to point out very quickly here is that this same idea actually holds to all of creation. That we have varying degrees of obligation based on our relationships with people. My children do not have the same obligation to obey a stranger as they do to obey me. If you have contracted with an employer, you do not have the same obligation to your employer as you do to someone else running a business. You do not have the same obligation to your government that you would have to some other, other government that you're not a citizen of. Obligations are inherent in, uh, in our society and it determines the transgression of that obligation also determines the greatness of the, the sin. So for instance, you find this in scripture. That sins uh, against, so yeah, in one place in, I believe it's the book of Exodus, uh, but in the law we'll say, you find that if you strike someone, um, there, are, there are penalties, serious penalties that can be monetary, um, but if you strike your parent, you're put to death. Is it because your parent is more, somehow more valuable than someone else? Well, no, they're both, you know, both people are made in the image of God but you have sinned against this inherent obligation that naturally every single person knows they have to their parent. So when we do away with God's honor by not having it upheld by the punishment of those who have impugned it in hell, you then have a situation where you will dispense with all of honor and all of obligation, even within society. I think you could argue that's what's happening right now. Penultimately, if there is no hell, there is no merciful and free sovereign. This is, uh, again, something that sounds paradoxical. But mercy and justice have an interesting relationship. Mercy is dependent on justice for its existence. You cannot have mercy without there being justice. Mercy is only shown to those who are guilty. And so in Romans chapter nine, the point is made that as believers are vessels of mercy, we look upon those whom God has raised up to display his power in the punishment of them in hell. And that is evidence of the mercy of God to us. Mercy that would not be displayed in any other significant way. So God's mercy requires both a hell to perceive it and a heaven to view it from. And then lastly, if there is no hell, there is no vindication for God's son, our Lord Jesus, or us as his children. Now, we're told in the scriptures that we must love our enemies, and indeed, you must. 
But as the scriptures say, both of David and of our Lord Jesus, they hated them or him without cause. Without cause. In fact, David in the Psalms and certainly our Lord Jesus in his life give ample evidence that they loved those who hated them. And as that hatred, I mean, we pray, we pray right now, God is being patient that, uh, so, that, so that none would perish, but that all would come to repentance. And yet as people persist forever in their sins and refuse to repent, uh, it is right that God would then turn and vindicate his children that are found in Jesus Christ. Ultimately, he is vindicating his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this ought to matter to you. It ought to matter to you that Jesus Christ, last time he was on the earth, he was not vindicated. Oh, in a sense, he was by the resurrection, but only among believers. We see people hate our Lord Jesus, curse our Lord Jesus, use his name as as a curse, as a swear. That ought to matter to you. And hell secures the vindication of all of Christ's enemy in their being put under his feet. As Jesus returns with a sword in his mouth to cast down all of his enemies and trample them underfoot. Christ spilled his own blood for his enemies and the lost. And he deserves to have his enemies put under his feet forever in a display of his lordship, his authority, and his power. And so in this way, among other things, hell is a gift of love from the father to the son to display the son's power, glory, mercy, etc. Let me finish by saying this. I would be remiss if I didn't, if I had an entire lecture in which I didn't mention a triad. And so Here is uh, a triad that I will leave with you. This is one of the triads that I teach to my children at Compass in Systematic Theology. Uh, But right near the very beginning of the course, without going into much detail, uh, but we have to be able to present these truths in some simple fashion, uh, we're talking about God's decrees, what he plans from before the foundation of the world. And we discuss what are God's purposes. And uh, three purposes I give in this triad. The first is that God wants to glorify himself. Secondly, that the father intends to bless the son. And thirdly, that God wants to manifest all of who he is to the world. And we see that this fits some of the hardest questions that we might find about our world, of which the existence of hell is one of the most serious. And and in these ways, this triad answers that question. God is glorifying himself through hell. He will. It is a reward for the son in the way that we have very briefly unfolded it. And it manifests the fullness of who he is in regards to his love, his mercy, his power. Let's pray. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Joshua Lecture Series on the Doctrines of Heaven and Hell. You can find all our lectures by going to newantiochinstitute.com and click on the tab Joshua Lectures, or by finding us on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform by searching for Proelium. 
These two lectures signal the close of our first year of providing these lectures. We will be taking a break from the end of April until September. In September, Lord willing, we will be launching our second year of a new Antioch Institute and look forward to providing you, our listener, with a second season of lectures. We are now accepting applications for the fall, and if you would like to know more about New Antioch Institute and download our application, you can email us at admin at newantiochinstitute.com or again, go to our website, newantiochinstitute.com and you can download our application there. You can also sign up for New Antioch's newsletter where you'll receive updates about one a month regarding what is happening in and around New Antioch. If you'd like to know more about how you can support New Antioch, please email us and we'd be happy to chat more with you. You can also find New Antioch on Facebook. You can find us there by searching for New Antioch Institute or through the link provided in the show notes. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for your support, whether it's through prayer or through financial giving. Either way, we deeply appreciate your partnership with us in graduating people who will engage the culture as change agents for the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Have a great day. Take care.